Bunker 
That was the washery as, as we termed it. Mike Isle spent 30 years working here at Ogilvy Colliery, and beyond the vast washery you may be able to make out the domed remains of the North Pit shaft. Whilst the South Shaft no longer exists, two trams mark its position, and we will visit these at stop seven. Back then, rather than birdsong, it would have been noisy machinery drawing coal from the earth and conveyor belts and trucks transporting material that would have filled the air until its closure in 1975. The air would have been thick with dust, and nearly all that you can see now would have been black. To your right, a train line ran right through what is now the upper-level car park. This was the main passenger line, but trucks filled with coal joined the main line a quarter of a mile further south. Today, the former railway line is a quiet cycleway linking the villages of Bargod to the south and Vokru to the north. Let's now head down to the colliery site itself and take a closer look. Using the rail on top of the wall as a guide, head down to the tarmac car park and turn left. A white line will guide you around the route from here on. Carefully follow the white line towards the car park entrance and over the stone-set speed hump. Turn right onto the main path, still following the white line, and follow this as it gently descends towards the lake. Listen to track 3 at the stopping mark on the path. The stopping mark is a circle sticking out from the white line. Track 3, Northern Boundary. Yeah, this is the, the northern boundary of the colliery. This is where the, the sidings, uh, when I mean sidings, is where they s stored the empty trucks so that they could be filled with coal from the washery to be transported to wherever it was required, mainly um, for the steel industry as uh, coking coal, taken up to the, the northwest of England, up to a place called Workington. But as Mike goes on to explain, it wasn't just coal they were extracting from the ground. Ogilvy was producing about 400,000 tonne a year saleable coal and it was only about a 52% vend, so 48% between three and 400,000 tonne a year went up there and that was for 50 years. Like. Look to your right. The trees on the steep valley side that you see growing here were planted in shale or colliery spoil and the valley side is much higher than at the start of the 20th century. As you will hear at stop nine, it was a huge operation to transport the spoil onto the mountainside. And because not every colliery had a washery, spoil from other sites, such as the local Britannia colliery, was also brought here. At stop four, we will meet up with park ranger Pete Lewis to explain some of the management that takes place today. Continue ahead in the direction you came, keeping the white lines on your right. Listen to track four at the stopping mark, beside the second bench you reach on your right. Track four, Ogilvy Olympics. As you made your way down to this point, you may have noticed the wooden apparatus on the right. This is the Ogilvy Olympics. The emphasis was to try and encourage young people out to a, a countryside environment and do a bit of exercise at the same time. There's about eight or nine different training stations. Together they form a linear course. We get the local schools out, and we have races along the course. It's, it's all timed, and they don't realise they're actually undertaking exercise. They're having fun, they're working on team-building skills, they get a whole team through the assault course, and it's really good, it's worked really well. 
To your right, within the lake itself, there is an ongoing challenge for Pete Lewis and his team. Initially, when the lake was designed and built, it was one large water body. But now we accepted to try and reduce silt up in the future. We're going to have one third wetland area, the top third being a wetland, and the bottom two thirds is open water. So somewhere at this point here, they've put a series of stones, large boulders, across the lakeside from one side to the other. And the aim of that is, is for the water to come down, hit the boulders, so to speak, slow down, and then deposit its bed load in the top third of the lake, whereas before it was deposited in throughout the whole of the lake. The reeds to our left mark this line of boulders, and much of this troublesome sediment has been washed down from spoil tips further north. As Pete adds, it makes sense to tackle this issue from both a financial and environmental point of view. At some point in time, we recognise that we're going to have to desilt the top third, but it's much cheaper to desilt one third than the whole of it. So, yeah, we've got the best of both worlds here. We've got sand banks, we've got mud banks on the top third, closed sort of water body. We've got the other flip side. We've got the open water on the bottom two-thirds, so we've got lots of different habitats rather than one just big open water habitat. So, yeah, it's, it's great for us. One thing we have had is um, some indications that otters are passing up through as well. One of the locals, he seems to think he saw an otter going up one of the, the water courses. So it's exciting times. It just shows how much the rivers have cleaned up yeah. since, um, you know, since the collieries have left. At stop five, we will discover that the water here wasn't always so beneficial to wildlife. Continue along the path and listen to track five besides the bench, by the stopping mark, just before the island. Track five, the washery. The washery started at the south end of the island there and it extended up to where the, the reeds begin there. It was a, quite a big building. It covered most of the uh, colliery's uh, boundary. They had shaker conveyors, you know, uh, with different diameter apertures in, in, in the plates. And, and what it was, the coal used to come up the shaft in trams. It would go in a tumbler then and emptied onto a conveyor. And then it would go onto a screen. And they had men then, what they call picking off the screens. They used to pick the muck off the screens and chuck that onto another belt. But the smaller stuff then, because you couldn't pick everything, it used to go into a big wash basin then. But because muck is heavier than coal, the muck used to sink to the bottom, and the coal would float. And then, because the water was um, circulating all time, the coal would be taken off, and it would go down again, and then the water would go through the sieve. That's all you were left with at the end, then was a very fine, small coal, as, as we call it. But, but what they used to do years ago, they had, a, they had a big tower which was full of water, and and the you know as the water was circulating, this tower was full of dirty water. But because there was no restrictions on what you could put into a river years ago, on the weekend, they'd empty this tower in, in, into the river. Try to imagine the scene as Mike remembered. A stark and imposing building awash with noisy machinery, pumping away 24 hours a day, six days a week. The water tower casting a shadow over where you stand, with water as black as tarmac cascading into the river that plots the same course as the path today. This wasn't a place for wildlife. It wasn't really a place for people. 
and at stop six we will discover where all the coal went. Follow the path alongside the white line and around the lake until you come to the wooden bridge. Listen to track six on the bridge. Track six. It's a long way to wheel a bit of muck. In the middle of the 20th century, we would have been floating about 20 feet above a single railway track that transported coal from this site to Workington in the northwest of England. There it was used as coke in the steel-making industry, and Mike has good reason to remember that each of the trams were loaded with 20 tonnes of coal. Because I, I, I remember during the 1972 miners' strike, well, it was a row of trucks up there now, hadn't been washed, and the, the collieries went on strike in 1972 for, I think it was three, three four weeks, and we ran out of coal in the house because they stopped delivering, you know. So what we did, we came up here and we dropped the sides of the wagons and whatever we had, a wheelbarrow, we come all the way up here with a wheelbarrow and and take the coal out of the trucks. And the, the, the police come here one night and they could see what we was doing. I think they come for the same thing. They had a couple of sacks in the boot and they seen us like we was right in the headlights so they couldn't run in there so they just turned around and we waited for us to fill our wheelbarrows and whatever, and we went, and you could see them come back after then. <laughs> but after that month, I think it was about 20 wagons from Britannia, but you must appreciate there was muck and everything in them. It hadn't been sorted. You had to have a look, you know, make sure we weren't taking muck. A long way to wheel a bit of muck in it right down to the village. But when the strike was over, there wasn't much coal in those wagons. It was all stone. So here we are at the heart of the colliery, to the north we have the lake and form a site of the washery. To the south, a small stream runs to the right-hand side of the memorial garden that is home to both the north and south shaft and a submerged pit wheel. As we make our way off the other side of the bridge, we will pass the stores on our right. Just behind the trees there was a, a building which was the colliery stores and you could get everything in there, you know, from... Uh, new boots and helmet and gloves for the men to a small little nut and bolt for something to, you know, thousands of items, you know, that's it was underground, so there was a big stores back here. Whilst the bridge offers a good view of the site, it was the manager who had the best vantage point, as we will hear at stop seven. Follow the path straight ahead through a green squeeze barrier and into the car park. Taking great care, walk straight across the car park, following the white line. When the line forks, turn right and follow it towards the car park entrance. Follow the path with the white line now on your left, out of the car park and up the road until you come to the second kissing gate on your right. Please take care not to trip over the speed humps. The kissing gate leads to the memorial garden. The surface in here is a fine shale material. There are no white lines to guide you around the garden. If you have a visual impairment and you do not have a guide, it would be advised to listen to the next three tracks whilst leaning on the gate. If you are happy to enter the garden, then listen to track 7 by the black pair of trams. Track 7. Idris the Hero. Well, uh, just about where we are, and there was a, a gantry coming across where the men used to get from the, the pit-head baths over to the lamp room to pick their lamp up before um, 
descending the shaft, you know, to start their shift. These trams mark the site of the south shaft, and the bathhouse stood just to the right of what was the manager's house on the valley side opposite. Today, the house commands a prominent position in the landscape, with views across the park, the wooded valley sides and the moorland tops. During the days of the colliery, the manager would have used this position to keep his beady eye on activities below. Both the manager's house and bathhouse were adjacent to the road, and the covered gantry would have stretched right across the valley below and almost to our feet. As with most mines, water ingress was a huge problem, and pumps were working away for 20 years after Ogilvy Colliery closed, to prevent water flooding the mines further along the seam. But it was an incident during the operational years that Idris Powell remembers most clearly. The incident I'm about to record happened at Ogilvy Colliery on a day shift in 1970. I went down the pit at 6.30am and walked in by for about two miles. A part of the mine, which was very crucial, was filling up with water. It was out by a coal district, but it was threatening the dump and bunker area where the coal was being filled into drums. What had happened, a large pump that was powered by compressed air had failed and was now under water. Fitters, surface mechanics were all at wit's end what to do. These were all standing at the back end of the roadway. I came along and discussed the situation. It meant that someone would have to go in to where the pump was situated, go under water and turn on the compressed air valve, which luckily was an on-off valve. Depth of water was about 8 to 10 feet. Length to go in the roadway was about 20 yards. I stripped off to my underclothes, kept my cap lamp cable in my mouth and went in swimming quietly into the murky pond of water. When I got to where the pump was sighted, I dived under water, felt for the valve and turned the compressed air on. Immediately, there was a violent surge of great air bubble from the pump, which forced me back from the pump. The pump, of course, was beginning to do its work, and I'd done the backstroke out of there, and everyone carried on as if nothing had happened. I came out, dried myself the best I could, and continued with my shift. When I had time to reflect on what I had done, things could have gone very wrong, and I would not be here to tell the tale. Turn right, head past the stone block circle and towards the large circular brick shaft. Listen to track 8 on the bench that is just to the left of this feature. Track 8, the north shaft. Where we're standing here now is is the north shaft, which was called, which is other termed as the the intake shaft, where the fresh air was pulled into the mine with with, with the the mine fan, and then it travelled through all the roadways of the mine, getting rid of the dust and the gas, and then it came up the the south shaft or the upcast shaft and into atmosphere. There was a big huge fan. It is about, um, I think it's about 12 foot in diameter, a fan, and electric fan, and it worked 24-7, 365 days of the year. Water stored in a reservoir now hidden by the trees beyond the shaft was also employed to tackle the dust, and as Mike recalls, another serious situation. 
And I always remember, I, Wales were playing up in Scotland rugby, and we heard it on the car radio coming home. That they had a serious underground fire in the south, yeah. down the south shaft. And um, that was the beginning, the end for the colliery, really. It went on for about four years after. But the reserves of the coal was down in the, in the area that, where the fire was. It took nearly a week to fill the mine with water, initially from the reservoir and then the stream below. And it was only once all the air had been removed could the fire be deemed extinguished. With the fire occurring in the most profitable section of the mine, it changed the fate of both this and nearby Taffmurther Colliery, as Mike recalls. The mines inspectors wouldn't allow them to re-enter that area again. It wasn't worth loss of life or anything, you know, because it was such a, a serious fire. They could pinpoint where the fire was, but they, they, they couldn't get within a quarter of a mile of it because the steel arches were melting. They were buckling under the heat, you know, and that was about, uh, well, not a quarter of a mile, sorry, I would say about two, three hundred metres from, from the source of the fire. And and that was the end of, you know, that was the, the downward slope of Ogilvy Colliery and that fire. In the south pit, well, we called the south pit, we, we were working towards Taffmurtha Colliery because the plans were, if that fire hadn't happened, they were going to, close Taffmurtha Colliery because Taffmurtha didn't have any tipping space like we had acres of it here. I say we, Ogilvy Colliery, had acres of tipping space up here. But when this fire came then, it, it gave Taffmurtha a reprieve and, and Taffmurtha went on then for another 15 years afterwards. As you make your way to stop nine, have a think about how you would transport all the waste material high up onto the mountainside. Head along the path immediately to the left of the bench and over a small wooden bridge. Listen to track nine on the other side of the half-buried black winding wheel, looking back towards the lake. Do take care walking round the wheel, as it is set in a hollow. Track nine, the aerial ropeway. As we have already mentioned, the area to the right of the lake was used to tip hundreds of thousands of tonnes of spoil. So how did it get up there? Well, it started its journey just to the right of the car park we visited after stop six, and over the years, a number of methods were used. This, this area here is where the aerial ropeway took the, the stone up to the mountain to be deposited on the mountainside, because the stone, nobody wanted to buy stone. It's the coal everybody wanted. So it was deposited on the, the aerial ropeway did require a lot of maintenance and they used to have a lot of problem, mechanical problems with it and although it was used for 30 years or more they did eventually go to lorries which were less maintenance free and um, more economical. The aerial ropeway, if you can think of a ski lift out in these uh, resorts out in Europe or whatever well, instead of having a car hanging on the wires where people would stand in, you'd have a steel, a steel bucket which contained about uh, two tonne of stone. And these buckets would go up on the rope and there was a mechanical device up on the mountain. And when this bucket touched this mechanical device, it would automatically tip the bucket and it would come back down to be refilled. On the ropeway, there'd be... A, there could be up to 30 buckets 
and all 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 in about two ton each. Because prior to the aerial ropeway, they used they had a truck going up the mountain, pulling trams. They had um, a winch up, or a haulage we called it up up on the mountain, and it used to pull about ten trams at a time up there, and then. Um, they would. They had a device up there then for tipping his trams over, and then they had like a bulldozer. Then they would just keep pushing them up and leveling it. Return back towards the north shaft, turn left and exit the memorial garden through the kissing gate. Carefully cross the road and turn left. Follow the path in between the white lines, and return to the car park you visited after stop six. Listen to track 10 at the barrier that crosses the path directly ahead of you. Track 10, the sawmill. And what we had just up here now was a, was a sawmill. If we wanted something made underground, like a door, for ventilation purposes, or say they had wood delivered to the colliery now, and it was, it was this length, and for some special job underground, they wanted it half as long. Rather have men underground sawing them, they'd saw them all in the sawmill and put them in a on a trolley, you know, and, and, and take them underground. Let's walk through the sawmill now and into what was the stockyard. As you listen to Mike, you can almost sense him seeing each of the items lined up and ready to go. The stockyard was about 150 yards because you had timber, steel, and then various other. Um, components, you know, you had spare cages for the shaft you know, the cages that the men rode up and down in, you had spare ones of those yeah, you didn't have to go to the manufacturers, you know, you always had a spare of everything here conveyor belt in everything was lined up here from, well right up to where that boy is were there and you used to have rolls of armoured cable for electric, you know, because you had to extend your electricity and Stacks of pipes because the further in you went, you had to extend your pipe columns, you know, for water and compressed air. You know, everything was was stacked up here. And so, as we leave the stockyard and this era behind us, Peter and Mike look to the future. We're going to just continue to manage the site, to encourage people to come here. We're going to manage the site to encourage the wildlife to stay here and for more wildlife to get here and uh, just make sure that the people of Derry and Caerphilly in South Wales have an attractive place to come and stay and, and appreciate what was here and what is here. The transformation from colliery to country park is is unbelievable. The, the work that the people concerned have put into it and are still putting into it, it it's... Um, it's, it's, it's an excellent facility. So it, it's something for everyone up here, really. And, and, and as uh, as Mike said, we're continually trying to improve it and providing more facilities for more user groups to be able to utilise it. We do hope you have enjoyed this Audio Trails production and wish you a safe journey home. Goodbye. Follow the white line along the tarmac path straight ahead, which is along the right-hand side of the lake and after several minutes, cross over the wooden bridge on your left. Turn right at the end of the path and head back up to the visitor centre. 
This audio trail has been funded by the Get Going Around Caerphilly project with Let's Walk Cumrai grant aid. Not only have you learned about the history of Park Cum Darren, but you have also benefited your health by having a walk. Diol Camrando i YYFM am fwy o gynnwys fel hyn i ddiliniad lein ac i ar y niwbod beth hoffech chi glywed nesaf ewch i it's yyfm.com Thanks for listening to YYFM. For more content like this, to follow us online and to tell us what you want to hear more of, visit it'syyyfm.com.